audience of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. This is a special announcement uh, from your host, uh, the booker, Jeff Bowdrin. Uh, Barry, I don't know why I'm doing that. Anyway, welcome to episode 255. Just, uh, you know, uh, changing up things a little bit, Bear. Episode 255 of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. The three best friends that you didn't know you had. Barry Rose. Did you like me changing things up a little bit there? I thought that was pretty good. That was actually a lot of fun. Yeah, just spontaneous, which probably showed, quite frankly. On this particular episode, Barry, we continue our look at the matches from the uh, top 100 of the 80s that I missed. This week, we're going to the rings of New Japan Pro Wrestling. And we, oh, Barry, early 1988, New Japan had a junior tournament that was sort of the predecessor of the old Super J Cup. And holy crap, what a roster of talent they had competing in this tournament. The match we're focusing on is Nobuhiko Takada taking on Hiroshi Hase, uh, a, a really good match, and we're going to talk about that. Besides all that, Barry and I, oh, we're going to be offering up a recap of the series, not just season, the series finale of Better Call Saul. We're going to be discussing that and our thoughts. Uh, we're going to be talking a little, oh, Barry always likes a little food talk, so we're going to oh, be yeah. talking gratuity a talk. And then finally... We're going to be doing our movie of the week, which is different from our match of the week. Our movie of the week has a wrestling theme, though, Barry. We're going back to 1985, Matthew Modine in Vision Quest. Yes, and we're going to be having the guest reviewers, as always. Barry Rose, first of all, are you ready to go this week? I am ready to rock and roll, Jeff. Let's do this one. Well, I tell you what, Barry, before we go to our match of the week, I know that you told me before we started recording that you received some very, very uh, troubling and upsetting news. Uh, number one, about a brother shipper and also two other people that we know through the uh, wrestling community. Why don't you tell the folks about that? Yeah, so I uh, woke up this morning uh, a little bit early, sat down, cup of coffee, started to look at social media, and it was like a one, two, three punch. First off, a brother shipper and listener and a friend, somebody that you and I have both known for probably decades at this point, Howard Brody, apparently fighting for his life was my understanding in grave condition, had a quadruple bypass last week, was being very quiet about it. I believe an infection has set in and uh, Howard is not doing good. You and I both, uh, we have talked to Howard. We have shared many messages. So Certainly keeping Howard in our thoughts that he'll be able to kick out of this and uh, maybe get back to promoting or doing whatever he's been doing. But uh, he's always been there for us. We want to be there for him. Scott Romer, and Scott's not a guy that I think is even in our group, but if you've been to CAC over the last 10, 15, 20 years, Scott has been a part of that. He is part of the CAC crew, was at one time married to the daughter of Dick the Bruiser. This would be the daughter that... uh, I think was married to him, and then she was married to Spike Huber at one point, married to another wrestler. I believe she's back married to Spike Huber now. And uh, so she made the rounds with several people, and and Scott actually worked for Dick the Bruiser, I want to say in media in some form, photographer or something. But he had a stroke last week at the age of 61, and uh, he is in the hospital. I did see a photo. I don't have any other details. He looked okay in the photo, but as we know, that doesn't always, that doesn't really mean a whole lot. So I don't know his condition, but my interactions, really nice guy. So we're hopeful. Sadly, I have to report the passing of uh, someone, and I'm not sure if he was even in our group, but Jeff and I both have a connection to him. And it was, his name was Jeff Cohen. 
And I knew Jeff going back probably 35 years to the mid 80s. And Jeff was a guy highly intelligent, sometimes too intelligent for his own good, uh, really bright guy. And he was the kind of guy, and I used to kid him about it, like when I lived in New York, I, Jeff and I would get together a couple times a week. We would go out and have lunch. And Jeff and I, Jeff Bowdrin and I were doing a newsletter in the early 90s called Chair Shots, which was kind of this irreverent, uh, kind of what the podcast is. We said whatever we wanted to say. We, we, just, we just gave our opinions and a lot of opinions. And uh, we were the opposite of, like, of what the observer was and, and the torch. And we actually had a little war with the torch and Mark Madden in particular at the time, which was a lot of fun. Uh, exactly. That was a brutal little piece of crap rag is what he called us. <laughs> And we and were we very took, proud to be called that. We were so – so and that was the funniest thing ever. Mark Madden, who we had trashed for weeks, it, on, in the torch says – and then there's this newsletter called Chair Shots, this brutal little piece of crap rag. For us, it was like winning the Academy fucking award. We took that like that was a badge of honor. We put that on the cover of the next issue, and we ran with it because you know what? That was as close as anyone in a torture observer was ever going to talk about us. So we loved it. But one of the guys who was a regular columnist was Jeff Cohen. And Jeff was a guy that when I got to New York, he said, hey, if you want, you can use my computer. We'll formulate chair shots on a computer. You can do all the printing here. It won't cost you anything to print. He was just a mensch, which is a, a Yiddish word for a really good-hearted guy, and he was a mensch. And uh, I actually went to Jeff's wedding, which was great. I, I always tell this story. I, I went to Jeff's wedding. It was on a, I think it was a, a Sunday night. And the day before, I had gone to ECW in Philadelphia. So I was living in New York. I took a train down or a bus. Dave Shearer picked me up took me to the matches and the next day he dropped me off in New Jersey where the wedding was taking place. I don't I don't this is all crazy shit. I saw Jeff a couple of times through the years and I think he was roughly somewhere within our age that 58 to 60 region. He wound up having two kids was a great this is weepy daddy was a great dad and you could look at his Facebook page and that's all he posted about. He and his wife did divorce within the last couple of years. I know that really took a toll on him, everything that I got, but he lived for his boys and he suddenly, I believe it was a heart attack, suddenly died two days ago. And he was just a guy. His dad died over the last year. I want to say his mom died like two years ago. So he had had this run of bad luck and then he passed away. He was a really good guy. And you know, we say this a lot, and I'm sure everybody that loses somebody, you know, I've lost both my parents, Jeff, you lost your dad. If you could only have that one, if you only knew and could have that one last phone call just to say something, right? Just to make your feelings known so that it doesn't. I, you know, I, I Jeff and I, we weren't super close anymore. At one point, we had been great friends. And uh, for no reason, then our lives went in different directions. And I think I talked with him two months ago, maybe three months ago. And he was talking about promoting an independent show at his temple. He was very active in uh, his temple. And 
we were talking about that. Nothing ever happened. And I didn't talk to him after that. And I, I wish I would have just, you know, of course, hindsight's always twenty twenty. One last phone call to tell him that he was a really good guy, deserved better from life uh, in a lot of ways. And that uh, was a really good friend to me. So Jeff Cohen, as we are so wont to do here, I am picking up my, my adult beverage. I know that Jeff and Lou have theirs in hands. I encourage all the brother shippers, if you got a bottle of water, a soda, whatever it is, raise it up into the memory of Jeff Cohen. Really, really good guy. And we wish all the best uh, in the speedy recovery to the other two gentlemen, uh, Howard and Scott. Uh, We're thinking of you both, and we're thinking of uh, the memory of uh, our friend Jeff Cohen. Godspeed to you, my friend. And uh, now let's, uh, let's go to our match of the week. Barry, once again, uh, it's time for our match of the week. This time, we are going to the rings of New Japan Pro Wrestling. And I have to be honest with you, we do not have a specific date. I believe early January 1988, it is the uh, top of the Super Juniors tournament that they held. Now, you know, people, Barry, before I get to uh, what the match is, uh, you know, we talk about the best Super Junior tournaments. The one they always mention, I want to say it's like, is it 95 where they had uh, Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Jericho, amongst all the other, uh, you know, Jushin Liger and all those guys. Uh, that's the one they always talk about. However, underrated, in my opinion, is the uh, Super Junior uh, Junior Tournament that took place in January of 1988. You had, amongst others, you had Owen Hart going over. And this was when Owen was really starting to get his first big push in New Japan wrestling. You had guys like uh, Hiroshi Hase, you had uh, Nobuhiko Takada, you had Shiro Koshinaka, Kazu Yamazaki. There were so many great junior heavyweights that were competing in the rings of New Japan. And just as a reminder, this was literally about a month, maybe six weeks after the famous Ricky Choshu Akira Maeda shoot kick to the that by the way shoot kick that'd make a great name for a pro wrestling column don't you think bear oh i like that yeah, well yeah. let's see what i did there so uh anyway our match of the week uh is going to january 1988 it is in fact the aforementioned nobuhiko takata pre second go round with the uh, uwf and here he was still a young up-and-coming guy that really i thought could have been the face of the promotion for new japan uh he's taking on Hiroshi Hase, future uh I don't know, congressman, senator. He was a politician, a pretty, pretty well established politician a couple of years after that. And they were part of this super junior tournament. I will tell you that uh Hiroshi Hase, we have mentioned this, it's been quite a hot tick since we last talked about this. A member of the Viet Cong Express that wrestled in Calgary with his partner uh Fumihiro Nakura. Uh, who uh, ended up having to retire because I think he had some sort of heart condition. Uh, so Hasi, Owen Hart, they knew each other very well. Uh, that was part of the reason I think why Owen Hart went over there. And of course, because of the connection with the Calgary promotion, Barry Rose, tell the good folks, Nobuhiko Takata versus Hiro Hasi. What'd you think of this match? Which yeah, was like, one of my top 100 of the eighties, by the way. I like this match too. And it's a little different than, you know, there, there's so much that went into plotting this match out and with the booking this is not just a match when i'll talk about that in a second so this this was part of a, the junior heavyweight tournament yes so what what con, looking at takata who looks about 63 240 pounds what constitutes are you claiming are you trying to say that they have fudged <laughs> right. the weights a little bit 
I'm thinking because when I look at this, Takata screams everything but junior heavyweight, right? Uh, <laughs> so I don't see it. Hase, too, and you're right about Hase. Hase became, and I think still may be involved in Japanese politics. A lot of times, some of these guys, I know Inoki was also involved. There's There were scandals at times involved with politics and professional wrestlers. I believe Hase is completely scandal-free, though. And a guy that I want to say, I didn't mean to interrupt, uh, I believe he may have been on their Olympic team yeah. or might have been in the Nationals. Uh, a guy with a real legit amateur background, uh, and that was part of what he parlayed uh, into his career in politics was his fame as an amateur wrestler, uh, probably more than his uh, fame as a pro wrestler. And I think, and again, scandal-free, and uh, it, Hase was one of those guys, it was really during that period uh, it was Hase, it was the great Muda, uh, Kijimudo, it was uh, Kensuke Sasaki. So there, there, was a, there was a bunch of guys, and Hase was the one guy that, I guess, got out early and got into politics. I think the upside, though, if he had stayed with professional wrestling, I think a lot could have been done. One thing that really struck me as I was looking at him here, especially at this stage of his career, is the physical resemblance to Ricky Steamboat. And it is the hairstyle. He's got a mustache, but look, Steamboat had a mustache in, I think it was 1976. But really, I think, you know, in professional wrestling, you could have made a case for it. You know, Steamboat's cousin comes over from Japan or something, whatever, something ridiculous. Uh, but the resemblance. I Leave the I booking found, to me, Barry. How dare yeah, that, you? That's actually pretty embarrassing booking when you stop <laughs> think about it. <laughs> but there is a resemblance that maybe they could have parlayed it into something more. So this match starts out, and uh, less than two minutes in, Takata lays two kicks on Hase, and that's really the story for the first half of the match. The first half of the match is Takata just torturing Hase, Hase getting zero offense in until the eight-minute mark. I mean, he doesn't get a thing. And uh, Takata is, you know, just doing, does he, he's doing, besides, you know, elbows to the head and knee drops and more kicks, He's got uh, Hase in a Boston Crab and then a one-legged Boston Crab, and he's really cinching back on it that it looks pretty painful right there. Uh, Hase's out of it, though. That first half of the match, Hase is completely out of it, and the referee does a great job constantly checking on Hase if he should continue or not. Hase's first offense comes at a little over eight minutes. And at that point, he starts to unwind. He, he does this barrage of suplexes in different types. And you want to see a guy who does, and these are unheralded suplexes because nobody talks about them. These are incredible. And these are, he's mixing essentially amateur wrestling suplexes. I don't know what you even call them in the, when they're amateur. I don't know if it's still a suplex, but he's doing these back it's body Barry, It's a suple. It's a thank you, Gordon Soli. So he's doing the suple. Uh, There's my just, same old tired jokes coming out again, Barry. That was pretty good, though. Is it but, about time yeah. for you to do some sort of weepy dad thing? Is it what the? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna be a little. Well, the next episode I'll be a little weepy. That's for sure about that. But with that too, these suplexes are a thing of beauty. And the first one he does. 
he does it in the amateur style and that he doesn't just drop the guy backwards. He drops the guy backwards and kind of flips over like it's just a an incredible, beautiful suplex. He also then gets Takata into a one-legged Boston Crab, cinching back. These two guys continue to go at it. The fight spills outside, and they do this really unique tumble over the ring barricade into the crowd. And it's great to see because it's almost like Hase is kind of teetering and just flips Takata over with him there in the crowd, winds up being a double count out of the ring. They get back in the ring. They're still jawing back and forth. Takata grabs the mic, says something to Hase. I have no idea what he's saying. Now, who was the young boy with Takata? Do you know who that was? Are you talking about the guy that came in at the end of the match? Yeah. Yeah. That was a Shiro Koshinaka. Is that really? Yes. Wow. It doesn't look anything like Koshinaka to me. Koshinaka. I mean, if, if, if you're uh, referring to who, because I know uh, maybe you're referring to somebody else, but Shiro Koshinaka does come in and there's like a confrontation post match. Yeah. That's the uh, guy. He pushes yeah, him. And Takata, yes, uh, not Takata, Hase pushes him. Yeah. Yeah. That must be, I mean, he had to be the young boy because he looks so young at that stage. And uh, there's a lot of jaw jacking between he and Hase. Uh, order the Bob is Armstrong restored. reference there. Exactly. Uh, order is restored. And uh, Takata and uh, Koshinaka go to the back. Hase's left in the ring. But what I liked about this match is this match really told a story. This was not a straight wrestling match. This was about Takata taking out Hase early on and then Takata controlling the match. And I'm assuming there was more behind the scenes or there's more to the story with this match because the jaw jacking at the end, Koshinaka getting involved. I, I think there's a bigger picture to it, but I really like this. And I like this a lot for the originality of the match as well. So I'm going to give a somewhat controversial opinion. What? Uh, I like this match. I don't want people to think that they should not check it out because it's absolutely worth watching. I just don't know that it's the top 100 of the 80s match. Now, that being said, you're right. There is a lot to like about the match. The match, first of all, is like a 13 and a half minute match. And for 13 and a half minutes, you're right. They tell a great story. There is. And, you know, when I watch this, I remember thinking to myself, boy, Barry's going to love this match because there's right. a lot of sort of the British style that's in there that you're such a fan of yep. uh, with the suplexes. You mentioned in the opening moments of the match, holy shit, that kick to the face that uh, Takata does to Hase is just like just cringeworthy how how tight it looked there. Uh, you know, you mentioned the the suplexes the you know, uh, what I wrote down when you talk about the Boston Crab was how deep he he hooked the Boston Crab in and made it look like he was absolutely just killing Hase. It was really good stuff. Let me point out that there is the uh, the ring announcer. You know, we talked uh, recently about uh, Dr. Tom Miller in Greensboro. The ring announcer uh, at this point in time for New Japan Wrestling, who was wearing the red jacket at ringside, uh, uh, Dave Meltzer used to call him Rockstar because he kind of had longer hair than you would expect from uh, somebody who was working as a ring announcer. But he might have been strictly for facial expressions and interacting as and making himself part of the match. And, and I don't mean that in a, a derogatory way. He made himself part of the match because what he would do, and he was super effective in this, is when someone would go for a pin, uh, you know, in the match, he wouldn't do this early in the match, but say that, you know, there's a, a period that's gone by in the match now and people are, are you know, going for submissions, going for pinfalls. 
you know, uh, Takata goes for a pen on, uh, you know, Hasi here. And the ref goes, one, two. And the camera is, of course, on the ring announcer. He holds up the hammer right over the bell, and he's just getting ready to ring it because it's going to be a pinfall. Well, of course, all the people sitting around the ringside, they see this, and they're like, oh, my God, it's going to Oh, no. It's like the old, you know, uh, Vince McMahon thing that we talked about when he was an announcer where Vince would go, one, two, new champion, no. And it added to the drama of the match. And this guy, who I will refer to as Rockstar, because that's what Melster used to call him, watch while you're watching this match, and we'll post a link to it, Watch the guy at ringside with the red jacket, the ring announcer, got a little bit longer hair. Watch the way when there's a, a two fo- you know, a two count, the way that he's just about to hit the bell. And it's a really a fun thing to watch during the match. And it adds to the drama of the match. You did not mention, Barry, the uh, the chicken wing submission hold uh, that was put on during the match. I thought that was oh, good. beautiful. Uh, yeah. The, the matches have gone about 13 and a half minutes. Uh, it is a double count out. Yep, Lou doing a little research, finding out the match actually took place February 5th, Barry, 1988. Thank you, Lewis. We do appreciate that. As we mentioned, Hase ended up becoming a politician. So let me just say, you mentioned that you didn't know what was going on, but it seemed like the, you know, Takata grabbing the mic and doing a little jaw jacking uh, and all this kind of stuff. So, of course, as we referenced at the very beginning of the match discussion, this was right after the incident with Maeda and Choshu. And of course, Takata was a big Maeda guy, you know, that, that he was part of the whole UWF group that had come back to New Japan and he was really being pushed, you know, now was he a <clears throat> 220? Probably not. Then again, Barry, if you recall, will the legendary Les Thornton, uh, how many times do you think he weighed in at that light heavyweight? <laughs> so yeah. anyway, so yeah, so, uh, Takata might've been a, a couple pounds over, but, um, he was part of Maeda's UWF faction, uh, and all those guys, of course, were students of the great Carl Gotch and not fans of the showy type of wrestling, as, as Gotch described it to me. So because Maeda had got himself in hot water and had been suspended, had not yet, quotation marks, formed the latest version of the UWF, which actually would have been the Oh, let me see the math. I guess that would be the second, uh, no, wait a minute, second. Yeah, I guess it would be the second version of the UWF. I think they had their first card in April of 1988 at the Tokyo Dome. Holy crap, Barry, why does that kind of stuff pop into my brain? I remember, uh, you know, I can't remember what I had for dinner last night. So I think there was all kind of pressure being put on Takata. Uh, they wanted him to basically show that he was one of the guys. He was willing to go along with stuff, you know and be a team player and if he wasn't then they were going to start you know bumping him down the card Takata was a guy that he I mean had a great look uh you know just a a good looking guy the kind of guy that I really think if everything had fallen in place if he had decided not to go with Maida to the UWF and trust me they all made tons of money there but if he had stayed with New Japan he was a guy that I really could see uh, you know, they they basically, after all those uh, guys left the promotion uh, in the spring of 1988, that's where guys like Muto and, uh, you know, uh, Sasaki, uh, Hashimoto, and uh, who's the, the Masachono. Thank you. Uh, that, that popped into my head now. But I think if none of that had happened, I don't know that those three guys would have been elevated, certainly not as quickly. I mean, I'm sure they would have eventually been, but I really could see that Takata would have been a guy that they would have pushed as one of the young stars 
and a guy that they would eventually push towards the top of the card, uh, you know, once Inoki reached uh, 75 years old and was finally willing to do a job, of course, but that's another story for another time. I think this is a really good match. I think it's really worth looking at and enjoying all the different amateur-style, British-style moves they're doing, some of the really stiff uh, moves they did, you know, like the kick to the face, the uh, the Super Junior junior Tournament in 88 again. Just fantastic wrestling with all these different styles. Owen Hart had a couple of great matches in there, too. This was right before Kichi Yamada uh, became Jushin Liger. He was still wrestling as a, a young boy, uh, Kichi Yamada, and was just like the proverbial underdog that everybody cheered for because he everybody knew he was so damn good, but he was so small. He was almost like, uh, dare I say, the way that a young Rey Mysterio was really over with the crowd because uh, he had that underdog and would always fight and, you know, give his all and really got over with the crowd, you know, in that way. Uh, and so they were all part of this uh, Super Junior tournament from uh, – the, uh, the early part of 1988, uh, and if you can find any of the other matches, and, I, and I'll try to find some other ones and post them there, just super, super action, Barry. And New Japan, at this point, I have to tell you, was probably my favorite uh, favorite promotion in the whole world. Yeah, for years, too, it was a, you know, and all Japan had a formula, and at times, I don't know how it translated over to this country, but New Japan was at times more vibrant, more exciting. The matches that sometimes had a faster pace. There was an emphasis too on the junior heavyweights, which all Japan really was always focusing on heavyweights. So yeah, you know, I often went back and forth between New Japan and All Japan as to which one was my favorite. But I think this match is a a really great look at really great booking as well, Jeff. Barry, never a bad time to talk about great television on Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. And uh, at the time we were recording this last night was the final episode of the epic, epic series on AMC, Better Call Saul. Uh, after six seasons, Saul, uh, the, the title of the episode was Saul's Gone or Saul Gone, one of the two. And, uh, you know, interesting, everything, Barry is subjective in life. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I posted something on my own page and I said, you know, what an epic finale to a series. And I was interested that some people, uh, said, I think it was Jason Ward said that this finale was flatter than a, a plate of water. And someone said, uh, this is no way, uh, in any way can compare to breaking bad. So before we get into all that discussion, Barry, tell us what you thought of the finale. Absolutely. And I, I should say, too, I did see those comments on your page, and we can address that after I tell you what I thought, because <laughs> as I was reading it, I was ready to go off on one of those people, and it wasn't Jason, but I did not. But on that note, it was masterful. It wasn't – here was the thing, and, and, and I guess this would address Jason's comment, so I guess I am going to weave this into what I think, but – it wasn't a sledgehammer over the head type of finale. And you do have those, right? Where everything is thrown at you, you know, and, and sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't work. And I think this season, first off, has been it, it's been the love letter to Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. And this is it. You know, even though last night it was revealed that there are two new shows coming out on AMC one starring Bob Odenkirk and one starring Giancarlo Esposito. These are going to be uh, in no way connected to the Breaking Bad Better Call Saul franchise. So it, my understanding is it's now been put to bed. It's over. And 
the whole season, every episode was crafted like fine art. It was like Picasso was painting or I like Dolly. Maybe Dolly was painting or somebody was creating something. And every episode was offering something that when you finished watching the episode in your head, you're like, holy fuck, they just shot Howard Hamlin right in the head. But that's how the whole episode, you know, Kim just left, you know, Saul and all this stuff is happening. And last night it wasn't, again, it wasn't this sledgehammer, you know, getting run over by a Mack truck where you're just completely shocked. What you did get was the end. And the last minute of the show was so impactful but yet it was so basic, but that's what it was supposed to be, right? Yeah, you like, know, let, let me, can I just say something real quick uh, based absolutely. on what you, what you just said? One of the things, you know, uh, as we do the Florida Man or Not segments that you always tell me as I'm reading the headlines and then the, the text of the, the article is you've told me that you start listening to every word to get like little clues, right? Yes. And one of the things that I really appreciated about Breaking Bad and this show, and maybe great television in general, but since we're talking about Saul, let's talk about Saul specifically, is how everything happened for a reason. There was nothing that was thrown away. You know, uh, every little uh, minute, seeming, seemingly minute detail, you would later go back and go, oh, that's what that was about, you know? And they were absolutely masterful at making the seemingly small, minute detail mean something and be important. And that's what I think is part of the brilliance of the show. Yeah, and there was just, it was you know that last scene. And if you, uh, I'm going to try not to spoil it, but let's be honest. I don't know how we talk about a series finale without putting spoilers. So if you haven't well, seen and it's, it, it's it's at the time we're recording this. It's going to be six days. So if you hadn't had a chance to watch, that's true. That's know, true. But it's on you. That is on you. And, and look, there was no way last night. I saw people. You know, this struck me as funny. And I, look, I know we're all different, but I think it was Javorski, and it was like watching Monday Night Raw, and people were chiming, and I'm like thinking to myself, really? Like you would not watch arguably one of the greatest shows in the history of television. I would have to say critics would probably agree it's got to be a top 10 show, but I loved it. it. To me, it's probably top. As you said, you said top five, and I would agree with that. It was beautiful. But that last couple minutes, even though, again, it wasn't this slap across the face, it made so much sense. And it just that vision of that last scene will forever be and i got a little weepy i was like shit this is six years of just great television and if you again if you tie it into breaking bad we're like 10 or 15 years because they really are so connected it was just so great i really liked what they did as i'm tearfully sobbing like a four-year-old when the show is over of course they come on with thank you so much for being a fan and i think that was the 30 to 60 second spot and they had the entire cast there just, you know, thanking everybody. And and I'll tell you what, Jonathan and Jonathan Banks gets me every fucking time. Mike Ehrmantraut. And he says, and I think he had even had the last word. And he said, I want to thank you all for such a special time in my life. And it was it was so it, again, he's, he's an actor. I get it. But it, it came across as so sincere when I was watching it, I was like, fuck me. And that guy is gold. I mean, here was a guy that was the bad guy 
in Eddie Murphy's Beverly Hills Cop yeah. almost 40 years ago. I mean, the guy has been around forever, and he, he looks a little different, right? He's yeah, aged, back then he had the years. full white guy fro. Yeah, know? exactly. He had that fro. He was that. He was an armed and dangerous a year later with John. But he's got this resume of just a, a tremendous body of work. And here he is at an advanced age, just putting on a performance of a lifetime, as everybody on this show did. There are no flaws. And what you said earlier, and I should say, too, I, I perused the Internet today and especially Facebook just to get a gauge of what people thought. And there was a lot of better call Saul completely overshadows Breaking Bad without question. And somebody, a, a newspaper reporter in Tampa, Paul Guzzo, who writes a lot about wrestling, which is why we're friendly, basically was defending the show to anybody that disagreed with him and said it's not even close and was listing all these reasons why to address the comments that I saw on your post. One was, and you said it was Jason. I don't know if I even saw that, but was it flatter than water? Absolutely not. If you love the show, it wasn't. Again, this wasn't the, the show where, uh, you know, this wasn't Walter White with a fucking gun rigged up to the trunk of his car or something going to take out a bunch of neo-Nazis, right? So that was very different. But there was a comment made on your page where is somebody, and I think it was the first one, and it's not somebody who's a member of our group either, though I'm aware of who this individual is. And he he does like to be contrite. I think he's a stick to wrestling contrite. guy. What, what's the word? You contrarian is what you're looking contrarian. at. Contrarian. Well, yeah. contrite. Isn't, doesn't contrite fall into that yeah, or contrite no? Contrite means you're sorry about something. Oh, I'm not sorry about this at all. Then. <laughs> then he's a contrarian. But he, uh, I don't know. What the fuck do I know? But he was basically saying, what are you thinking? It was like he was questioning you on your thought process of why you would think that this show is so much better. It's not even close. I got to tell you, I, and I think that guy's kind of pompous in what he says a lot completely off base and it's kind of like so i had this conversation and this is what i'm going to equate it because everything in life equates back to the big lebowski right so i was uh picking up some seafood at whole foods the other day and i was wearing a lebowski shirt and the guy looked at me and he goes over the line and i knew what shirt i was wearing and we traded lebowski quips for three minutes which is the seafood guy is he's like getting me my shrimp right which is awesome and he says, you know, I just showed my wife this movie for the first time and she got it. And I said, thank God. And he said, yeah, because if she didn't get it, I probably would have had a divorce, sir. And <laughs> it, it, but it made me feel like there's a similarity to Better Call Saul. And I think great, great art in a sense that, look, I'm, I, I'm, I feel internally grateful that I get the Big Lebowski because we see it all the time on Facebook where people will say, I don't get it. I, I don't get the jokes. I don't understand it. And there's part of me that feels a little bad for these people. If people are watching Better Call Saul and don't get it or don't get the finale, there is a certain amount of sadness that I have for them. Well, End you know, we, we, we've uh, we've talked about how everything's subjective. And uh, just like, uh, you know, the person that you were talking about that posted, they didn't understand my uh, feelings for Better Call Saul. You know, we've talked about great shows uh, in the past, and you know there are people out there that'll swear that Sopranos is the greatest television show in, in the history. Uh, and you know what? If that's the way they feel, that's their feeling, and I don't have a problem with it because, like I said, everything is subjective. The fact that I think that Better Call Saul is a top five show in the history of television—that's my opinion. Yep. Guess what? I can have that opinion if 
Barry Rose doesn't agree with me or somebody else on my Facebook page doesn't agree with me. I don't have a problem with that. You know, I may disagree with what you say, but if that's the way, you know, if you think Sopranos is the greatest, if you think, uh, you know, some other show is the greatest, that's your opinion. And there are people that will sit there and, you know, say, oh my God, I can't believe you, you know, the Sopranos, you haven't binged watched, you know, every season. I watched one show. I thought it was a good show but it didn't grab me the way that other shows have. You know, when I first started watching Breaking Bad, I think I binged watched the entire series like in about five days. It grabbed me. And, you know, one of the things, as you were talking, Barry, uh, as I often do, I really wasn't listening to what you had to say. <coughs> no, I'm just uh, Hello. Uh, so, uh, but you know how they took The Godfather and they re-released a version where it's, it is told in sequential order? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, you get the young Vito Corleone, uh, you know, where his uh, his mother is killed and you take it all the way through, uh, you know, Godfather three, where Al Pacino, spoiler alert, uh, dies. OK. Oh, and it's uh, yeah, I know. I can't believe I, I spoiled that for you. But uh, it was masterful storytelling and it presented a different look at something that, you know, people had seen lots of times and it made it for an interesting dynamic. And I sat there, and as I, you were talking, I was sitting there thinking, you know what I wish they would do is I wish they would take Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, and what was the movie that was about Jesse Pinkman? Do you remember? Yeah, I, but I didn't like it. That was the one. Well, thing no, no, but like. what was the name of the movie? Oh, I don't remember that. Uh, well, was it Mustang or something? El Camino? Or? El Camino, that's what it was. Yes. Okay. Uh, but I wish in some way they can take all that and somehow put them in sequential order and like, you know, maybe somebody at AMC can do this. And like for like maybe a week, they run Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, you know, both series in sequential order. Eh, maybe they throw the El Camino movie there at the end uh, just to, you know, wrap up everything in a bow. But I think that would really give people an interesting look at the two shows, the two dynamics. I am certainly never going to come on here and shit on Breaking Bad. I love Breaking Bad is in that top five for me. It's an amazing show. And, you know. One of the things that someone has said, it may have been Jason, uh, may have been somebody else who said, you know, Saul Goodman, uh, Jimmy McGill and Walter White are essentially two sides of the same coin, because what you have is you have Walter White, who is a good man who was corrupted, uh, you know, by the world that he was in and the world he basically created for himself and trying to help his family and became corrupted. Saul Goodman is essentially kind of a sketchy guy. <laughs> Let's be honest. You what they call him, slipping Jimmy or, or something yeah, like that. Exactly, always yeah. trying to work an angle. And what happened was you had, as Barry said, literally one of the last minutes of the show, you showed the redemption of Jimmy McGill and the redemption of Jimmy McGill because of his relationship with Kim Wexler. And uh, I thought that made for an incredible dynamic. And uh, again, the yin, you know, I, I talked about it last week, the yin to the yang, the the fire to the ice, and the love that he had for Kim Wexler finally turned Jimmy. And what was interesting was he finally was turned and ended up going to prison because he turned. <laughs> he did a baby face turn and ended up going to prison for a longer time than he would have if he had stayed heel. Yeah, he did. And that's and I, I think that was part of it. And of course, spoiler alert. He was visited by his lawyer, Kim Wexler, uh, in the last minute. And she's and they're just standing there and they both look kind of relaxed. They're in what I'm assuming is a holding cell where I don't know what it was, but it was just it was a truly poetic moment. And I got to say, 
it was I think that was the right way to end the show with that. I do think this show could have certainly gone on for many more years because there had been no drop off whatsoever in the quality of the program. But at the end of the day, they knew how to end this. And uh, it really was. And there was a there's a great scene that did take place in because you just mentioned him between Heisenberg and Jimmy McGill and just the conversations. Yeah, and there were probably that's, a, there was yeah. a lot of callbacks to Breaking Bad in this final episode. Of, you had yeah. Walter White, you had Chuck McGill, you had um, what's his uh, his brother in law, uh, his I guess it would be uh, uh, Walter White's sister in law that had lost her husband, That's Hank, right? Hank's wife, yeah. who showed up and very surprisingly too uh, to confront Jimmy McGill about how he had helped perpetuate the crime that ended up in her husband being killed. Uh, so I want to just mention uh, you, uh, myself, like you, uh, were going through, uh, you know, the internet, seeing what people had to say about the final episode. And let, let's be honest, first of all, you know, you and I, we both love Seinfeld. Okay. This was no Seinfeld finale. I can tell you that. Oh God. Thank you, know, thank you Lord. <laughs> you know, where the Seinfeld as great as the show was, you know, that, the final episode was like the old turd in a punch bowl that just nothing really yeah. that good about that. Uh, other than the fact that you had all these characters from the, the show's history, you know, show back up into the courtroom, but better call Saul, uh, you know, so I, I see this review. It's by a guy named Nick Harley on the website, den of geek, which that's a pretty cool name for a website. So, um, I, I want to read to you some of the stuff that he said. Uh, and, uh, because I thought a lot of what he said, was uh, pretty spot on. He said, you know, he said, uh, reviewing Breaking Bad was the first time I'd received feedback from strangers in the comments. And shockingly, it was mostly positive. I was a broke college kid constantly wondering if I should have majored in business instead of journalism. But one day, or I'm sorry, but once I saw I was reaching people, even in a small way, through writing about great art, it helped silence my doubt. Breaking Bad was crucial in my development as a writer, and I was sad to see it end. That personal attachment to the show was why I initially bristled at the idea of a prequel centered around the show's com uh, comedic relief. While good prequels have been made, they're few and far between and often fail to justify their existence beyond merely being money-driven property extension. My fears were that Better Call Saul would tarnish the legacy of my sentimental favorite. My fears could not have been more unfounded. In my eyes, Better Call Saul ended up eclipsing Breaking Bad. Saul is a show about the simultane simultaneous motivating and corroding nature of family influence, about falling victim to your worst impulses, how change is hard, about how self-destructive self-avoidance can be, and those themes ultimately spoke to me on a greater level than the thrilling journey of Walter White. While Breaking Bad was impressive in getting me to turn on, on its protagonist, Better Call Saul was miraculous in getting me to love the man behind Saul Goodman. So I, I, there's more from the article I want to talk about, but let's talk about that for a second. The way, uh, and he's absolutely right, the writing in Breaking Bad was so great because here you had Walter White, you had experienced his journey, you know, the poor guy's dying of cancer. All he wants to do is provide for his, his wife and his special needs kid, and he ends up becoming corrupted. and they, you know, he does a heel turn and you're like, fuck, man, I, I, you know, this was the guy that I loved for all these seasons. And now he's kind of a bad guy. Whereas the flip side of that is better call Saul. You know, you knew that Jimmy McGill slash Saul Goodman 
was essentially a very sketchy guy, but you loved the fact that he was a sketchy guy, Bear. You do, too. And look, it, that that's what made his character so unique. And here was the other thing, too, right? Like, they made the characters, Walter White and Saul Goodman, vastly different. Yet they're both spearheading a show that there's a lot of similarities to. So I do like that. A couple of notes, too. I posted a photo earlier. And before I before I even read this, what about fucking Carol Burnett on this? Oh, season? yeah, she was absolutely she should get nominated. Definitely. She has to. I mean, it's first off, you're talking royalty when it comes to television. I think of television female royalty and it's Lucille Ball and Carol Burnett. Right. I mean, she is. It's Carol fucking Burnett. So and I thought that. Great. I was going to say, let's give credit because there are a lot of actresses that as they begin to age, sometimes not gracefully, that don't want to be seen in the public. And here's Carol, who's what is she in her mid 80s at this point? If she's a day, who doesn't mind showing herself. And she's, you know, she's using a wheelchair. She's obviously way older than she was in her heyday, which, uh, let's be honest, was over 40 years ago. And checking in Carol Burnett. 89 years old and tons of credit to her for having the, you know, just the, the the self-belief in her, you know, in her own acting skills and to go out there and show that she's aged, you know, and, and God bless her for it because she was absolutely magnificent uh, in her role. So uh, to continue with what the, uh, the writer had to say this time, there's a real finality to this goodbye. I've had this feeling before, and it was quickly erased by the announcement of Saul. This time, if Vince Gilligan is to be believed, and he is, of course, the creator of the show, there are no more stories coming in this world. There is no El Camino coming up the drive. Gilligan may revisit Albuquerque somewhere down the line if the muses or desperation strike, but this is the end. Thankfully, Saul gone is not just a proper loving conclusion to these stories and characters, but it's one of the most artful series finales I've ever seen. He continues, one of the episode's savviest moves was staging three past tense conversations with some of the most impactful people in Jimmy's life, centering on regret. These conversations helped illuminate who Jimmy is at his core and why, and they also end up showing how meaningful Kim Kim Wexler was in changing Jimmy McGill's heart. They also give us precious final moments with Mike, Walt, and Chuck, giving us a snapshot of who they were as characters on a fundamental level and allowing them a curtain call. Most fitting is that Mike is the first of these flashbacks because early on, Better Call Saul was as much Mike's origin story as it was Saul's. Gilligan and co-creator Peter Gould have been frank about the fact that Saul's story has evolved greatly from its original concept And Mike's presence in the series may have suffered as a result, but it's nice to see one more conversation between the two characters. Jimmy asked Mike what he would change if given a time machine, and as as if he's pondered the question across many sleepless nights, Mike instantly suggests returning to 2001 to stop the murder of his own son or going back even further to stop his own descent and becoming a crooked cop, thus preventing his son from ever being in the situation that led to his death. He also discusses using the time machine to visit his family in the future. In just a few quick lines, the pain and regret that hovers around Mike, but his desire to provide for his loved ones are all illuminated. So let, let me just stop right there. Uh, there's still a couple more things that the writer has to say that I thought were pretty uh, pretty impactful. Uh, Mike Armentrott, uh, you know, when you discuss, if I was to say to you, who is your favorite character in Better Call Saul? Who would you say? Oh, so are we, we're removing Jimmy McGill? 
Uh, sure. Let's take him out of the equation. And, and, and let me tell you something. Uh, even taking uh, Jimmy Saul out of the equation, there are a lot of really good characters, and, and it's hard to say, oh, this is my favorite, or this person's my favorite. Uh, you know, it's a tough choice. Yeah, it is too. So it's uh, removing Jimmy. It is going to come down to two characters for me, which will be absolutely no surprise. Uh, it would be Kim Wexler and Mike Ehrmantraut. Yeah, and that's very fair. And that's probably who yeah. I would say too. And like you said, the evolution of the character uh, as played by um, Jonathan Banks is really, and again, here we, we discuss it with Carol Burnett, a guy that was, you know, a Afro henchman in a lot of films. He uh, he doesn't play the baby face in movies uh, or TV much, no. but and now he's evolved to this ball headed sort of craggly face. But it's like a, a craggly face that just has you, you look at it, and you go. And there are so many stories in that face, you know, uh, and so much that time that's taken place since he was in Beverly Hills Cop. And there's just like, you know, uh, the all the lines and wrinkles seem like they tell a story to me. Uh, and of course, Rhea C- uh, Seahorn as uh, Kim Wexler is a. Uh, Absolutely fantastic. Uh, we'll get to her in a second. The writer continues, when we watched Saul deliver the same question to Walt during the Granite State timeline, Walt's character is similar, similarly outlined well. Walt tears into the absurdity of the premise using science and is domineering towards Saul, yet he's wise enough to get to the heart of what Saul's really asking. He plainly discusses his backstory with gray matter, the moment that curdled his genius and ultimately turned him into the petty and vindictive man that we saw clearly in Ozymandias, which is the title of the uh, episode. Brian Cranston is so is so effortlessly slips back into Walt's skin and metaphorically paints using all of Walt's colors. Boy, this guy's a good writer. He Boy, that, <laughs> what Jesus. Wow, he's great. <laughs> so Listen to uh, that. he continues, he says, in both instances, Saul basically acts like the living embodiment of a no regrets tattoo, which, by the way, wow. side note. Have you ever seen the uh, the picture that's out there? Uh, no regrets. No regrets. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's really funny. Anyway, uh, however, a final flashback with Chuck explains the behavior, and one of Jimmy's weekly selfless supply drop-offs to Chuck. He not only notices his brother reading H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, which likely inspired the questions to Mike and Walt, but when Chuck suggests that Jimmy could change course when it comes to a, his career and life choices. Jimmy observes that his brother, a man that he ultimately greatly respects, never second-guessed any of his own actions. Chuck lived a life of no regrets, mostly out of his own arrogance, but it sticks with Jimmy. Ultimately, everything Chuck did stuck with Jimmy. We learn that in Saul Goodman's final appearance. After being caught in a dumpster and confronted by Marie Schrader face-to-face, a stroke of genius being uh, actress Betsy Brandt back in the nest capacity. Magic Man talks his way into an extremely lenient plea deal, clearly enjoying himself despite the circumstances. The Saul Goodman mask only falls once Kim Wexler's name is brought up. And that was an extremely powerful scene where he finds out that you know, here he's trying to play this, yeah, this card, if you will, during uh, negotiations. And he find out, he finds out that Kim has already played that card, Barry. Yeah, and and I thought that was really interesting too. And it was it was nice, you know. In the I th- I like what they did with Kim's character as well. And we discussed that a little bit. Uh, we discussed that off air over the last few days. But the completely different look, uh, clothing. She went from a chic look to a more small town kind of. I don't know what. Let's target. be honest. She was she was kind of a plain Jane. 
Yeah, she was. She, and then she changed her hair. Her hair was a dark color. It was not an attention-grabbing hairstyle at all. Yeah. So there was a change with that character as well. And I, I got to say almost, that it was, it was almost a hairstyle that uh, was uh, that screamed out, I don't want to be noticed. And it also screamed out like 1986 yeah. in a small town. It was definitely dated, but that's what it was supposed to be. And the fact she was even riding a bus in the second to last episode when we discussed and she was breaking down and crying. So she had changed a lot. And another thing that I liked about the finale, first off, you get the impression that the actors know that they were they were doing something different. This was not just a quote unquote television show or just quote unquote work. This was something that truly was special. And it was the amount of people that came back. I mean, Chuck, you just mentioned him. Chuck had been gone for a couple of years. And Michael McKeon, so he's in a, a scene with Jimmy where they're talking and it's, you know, it's really poignant in knowing the end result, which I like as well. Just beautiful. But a couple of comments I want to read to you right here. This actually came comes from our, our Facebook group, the Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry Facebook group. And Jeff, what do we like to say? Uh, if you're not a member, why aren't you? Pretty much because it's just an extension of the podcast and we just sometimes go a little more in depth. Plus, there's content you're not going to get from the podcast that you will find in the Facebook group. So yeah, the new really photos of uh, Barry and Lou that we read. Oh, absolutely. The yeah, dick yeah. photos is exactly why, well, you, you know, and, and Lou was at first like, you know, like uh, as big a Shavansa as I got, you know, do I really win? We said, Lou, come on, be a team player. And he was happy to post them. So do it for the team, Lou. Exactly. exactly and he yes. did. And uh, so, yeah. So if you do want to see nude photos of sweet Lou Kippelman, we encourage you join the Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry Facebook group. Uh, the three best friends you never knew you had. You will not be disappointed. Our old friend Michael Herrick, also a moderator of that fine Peabody and Sherman award winning Facebook group. Checking in. The final two episodes were just amazing television. Rhea Seahorn had better win an Emmy for her performance in the penultimate episode. You see what he did there? Eh, the penultimate. I got it. Yeah. The ice cream bit was funny, but Saul had a point about how good Bluebell is. Ever notice <laughs> we can take anything and turn it into food in some form? Exactly. Yeah, without spoiling things, because we just did that, Michael. It was good to see Jimmy wasn't completely lost to Saul and Gene. Also looking forward to these two new series coming next year, starring Bob Odenkirk and Giancarlo Esposito, respectively. And then I like this one, Greg Allen checking in and Greg doing a wrestling metaphor for Bob Odenkirk and and uh, breaking in better call salt, breaking kayfabe, whatever it is, breaking bad. The one thing I get out of the show overall is how glad I am that Bob Odenkirk got his deserved time in the sun after years of being mostly an upper mid card yet really talented character actor spot fucking on right there yeah, seeing him spot. holding the awards is good to see and I, I posted a photo i think where they all won like emmys or something so that's what he's referring to but end of the line for this let me ask you this too and i know that we all love our shows i certainly has any show or any cumulatively any two shows ever gone out on top the way that Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul has. I'm hard-pressed to say that any ever have. Well, I mean, you know, there's shows that have gone out on top, uh, like as far as ratings. Now, as far as going out on top with a, an episode that, uh, you know, is is brilliant television, like Breaking Bad did, like this, that, you know, a lot of, like we said, we kind of shit on the Seinfeld finale. Uh, oh, it's horrible, though. It was the horrible. Sopranos finale, uh, 
was very much talked about because it had sort of an ambiguous ending, you know, uh, with uh, sort of the fade to black uh, right. that is was so famously done. But uh, anyway, let me get back real quick. Uh, just finish up this article because he makes some more interesting points. When Jimmy learns that Kim did the right thing and turned herself in for the murder of Howard Hamlin, Jimmy decides to ditch his sob story, which miraculously just stated plain facts, and fessed up about his real motives and role in Walter White's empire and his collateral damage. In an almost helpless fashion, he circles back to the events of Chicanery, the episode title, and its fallout, revealing how Chuck was always to blame for the Saul Goodman transformation, whether directly or indirectly. However, Jimmy's love and respect for Kim were the only things that allowed him to get past the pain that Chuck had caused. Kim was the only person who could break the hold that Chuck had on Jimmy's psyche, or psyche, the only person that could make him feel regretful. The episode's final moments are sublime and beautiful. In the end, Jimmy throws away a slap on the wrist sentence to do the right thing. We're given a glimpse of his life in prison, and unsurprisingly, slipping Jimmy looks like he's just about running the joint. The cherry on top is Kim visiting using a very Giselle-like tactic. When Kim says, hi, Jimmy, it nearly melted me. And in a perfect bit of circular storytelling, the two share a smoke, just like their first scene together. In the end, Jimmy McGill gets exactly what he deserves. He may be in prison, but he's made amends with Kim. No regrets. And in the end, Better Call Saul goes out just as it lived, an intelligent, charming, deeply human fashion. The series and its parent show have given me so much, and they've created an impossibly high standard that every other show will have to contend with. Showtime is over, folks. It's Saul over but the crying. See what he did there? It's Saul over but the crying. Nice. So anyway, good article uh, from the the website Den of Geek. Uh, Fantastic show, fantastic ending. Uh, and if you get a chance, if you have not gone out of your way to watch Better Call Saul, what are you waiting for, folks? So, you know, Barry, the other day, the beloved Mrs. Bowdrin and I were out on a trip to the old Waffle House for a quick breakfast. Nothing like a nice waffle to get your day started. And a thought passed my mind as we were uh, handing the uh, young lady that was our server uh, her cash tip. And I thought to myself, you know, when it comes time, Barry, uh, when you were a server uh, and you would uh, accumulate your tips at the end of the night, at the end of the week or whatever, explain again, how does it work? How much of, you know, like you get tips, let's just say for the sake of argument, you get $100 uh, in a a week uh, or in your case, in probably an afternoon in tips. How do you have to declare those tips uh, at the end of the year? So, it, yeah, boy, it wasn't that always confusing. And there were a lot of changes that occurred. And I, I remember years ago, you know, maybe the first five or 10 years of my uh, serving career being a little freaked out by this because we used to have to declare a percentage. And I want to say, and I'm going way back, I want to say it was like seven or eight percent. And certainly we were making more than that. But if you didn't hit that threshold and didn't declare that much, there was a chance that you were going to be audited by the IRS. What the saving grace, which this is pretty much standard operating procedure now, I think for restaurants is a lot of servers, if it's cash, will not declare it. They're declaring only what's traceable through credit cards and what's on the credit card slip. So you declare it at that point. And actually, it's the restaurant's responsibility to declare it for them now. So I don't think servers even have to do it. But uh, cash was always your friend because if you worked in a restaurant, 
that didn't take credit cards, that means all your tips were being paid out in cash. So you were going to declare a very, very small amount. So I, I forget, but I remember in my serving days, I want to say it was seven or eight percent, really small. And I, I would always hit that threshold. So if uh, any of our listeners were going out to uh, to have a fine meal, sure. Would you recommend if their server has done a nice job and if they're paying with a credit card and it's not like an extravagant amount, you know, if you're going out or to, you know, you and somebody else are going out and giving them the tip in cash, if possible. If your server has done a great job, I highly recommend doing that. And partly also, I mean, there's actually quite a few reasons I would, I would tell you to do that. So if you want to pay your bill, it's 50 bucks. And then you want to leave them, uh, you know, 10 or 15 bucks. If you've had a great experience, cash is going to be the friend of a server. It is cash money. And yeah, I, I would absolutely okay. say that. So here's the reason I'm asking this. When you're serving at Tavern on the Green, okay, you're obviously making a better income sure. than someone who's serving at a Waffle House, okay? Correct. But the odds are, for the most part, not always, but for the most part, someone at Tavern on the Green is going to be paying with a credit card, right? Sure. Almost someone at always. Waffle House might be paying with cash. Yep. So is that person at Waffle House, while they're not obviously making the same amount of money as the person at Tavern on the Green, it'd be, you know, there's a huge newsflash for everybody. But that person at Waffle House is getting that money that they don't have to declare because they're getting it straight cash as opposed to the person at Tavern on the Green who, you know, the majority of their income is coming from tips that are going to be on a credit card receipt, as you said, correct? It, yes, correct. Okay. So in that manner, as I thought about it, you know, it, we, we discussed really that cash is, is friend to all the different servers. So, you know, maybe the Waffle House gig that we initially kind of look and say, eh, they're fucking working as a server at, at a Waffle House. If you're a person that thinks that way, you know, they're getting all this cash under the table that they're not having to declare where that guy at uh, Tavern on the green is going to have to pay that 7%. Uh, so really, uh, Who's coming out uh, better, Barry, as far as I'm strictly talking tax wise? Well, here's the other aspect, too. So if you let's say you work at a let's say you work at a place that is cash only and there are no credit cards accepted, they only take cash and you don't declare at least seven or eight percent, they're going to audit you. A lot of businesses will actually, and the business will get audited as well, but at the same time, a lot of businesses would actually look at it and would say something to the effect of, uh, you know, we're going to declare 10% for you to keep you out of, you know, whatever, to keep you off the radar of the IRS. If you don't, let's say, you know, and look at it this way too. Let's say you're, you're working at a Waffle House somewhere in the deep South, maybe. And you've got a woman who's got to work two or three jobs. She's in her forties. All she's doing is going to work to survive, you know, take care of her kids. She's working the waffle house and maybe another similar concept. So she's not really concerned with how much she's going to be declaring. She just, she needs to make this cash to be able to pay her bills, et cetera. So I, uh, and, and that'll lead to potential issues. I mean, that regardless, you know, the IRS doesn't care if you're in the middle of nowhere or not. So I would say, you know, the best advice I could ever give somebody when it comes is follow the letter of the law because the IRS is not really the organization that you want to fuck with uh, no. when it comes to it. And that's I, I got a bad you, letter to get. Let's just that's say. a bad letter to get. And here's the other aspect. If you don't have good representation or something similar to that, you, you could be in a lot of trouble. And yeah, just ask Wesley Snipes about that. Well, Wesley Snipes, who did time, right? 
so I had from work, I had restricted stock units and you know, it, it was so unclear about how much I had because it vests every year. So it, it's very hard to tell exactly what you have at any given moment. And uh, I remember I was doing my taxes and my the guy, my, the tax preparer said, yeah, you don't need to put this down. Well, we got a letter from the IRS and it basically said, you know, we need a full explanation with documentation on this. And I'm like, holy fuck, contact the guy. The, the tax preparer, who was an accountant, and uh, he was able to resolve this and never went any further. But that's a scary thing when you get the letter because you know you, you're really not going to win that battle, you know, if they find something. Yeah, no, that's, uh, you know, we, uh, I, I believe I mentioned, had our own situation where, uh, you know, my taxes from my retirement account, uh, they were not because Florida does not have a state income tax where Georgia does. And all of a sudden, when we were preparing our taxes, it was like, holy shit, uh, you know, your retirement system in Florida was not deducting the taxes that you, we have to pay Georgia for state income tax. So that was a nice, hi, how do you do that we had to uh, suddenly, uh, you know, uh, seek out uh, advice and counsel on. Uh, so, yeah, not something that uh, you ever want to uh, have. That's a, a knock on your door you never want to have, Barry. Yeah, that's for sure. You absolutely never want to have it. And, you know, it's it is tough. And it, a lot of businesses are the ones who are supposed to be handling this less for the servers. In the old days, it was the servers. It was, you know, I remember I had to fill out a form and all this shit and uh, you had to sign the business would give you something and you had to sign it. I think now it's just standard deductions. If you're working in a tip position, they look at what your sales are or whatever you've received. And it better be eight, 10%, whatever the number is currently. But yeah, never want to fuck with the IRS. Very time to talk movie of the week. Ooh. Here's one we haven't talked about in a while. I hadn't seen it in now, I want to say four or five years. One of my favorite sports movies. Barry, has it been a hot tick for you since you've seen Vision Quest with Matthew Modine? Yeah, much like you just said too, Jeff, I think it's been three, four, five years. It's somewhere around there. And I remember we were discussing this movie. And when this movie first came out in 1985, I, I saw it in the theaters. I loved it. Matthew Modine, Linda Fiorentino, they were both kind of hot in that world. They weren't big, huge stars. But Matthew Modine had made several movies. He made that great movie with Phoebe Cates called Private School which had a lot of topless young teen girls running around. Really big of fan the, of that, are you, Bear? Uh, you, well, know, you know, I was. Uh, culture, hello. Yeah, exactly. 1983, I was, I think, when that film came out. And it was, uh, you know, there was that whole big kind of teen exploitation that was going on. And Linda Fiorentino was in the great movie Gotcha with Anthony Edwards. So this movie to me was like, you know, these are people I like and it's a subject I like. It's got. Uh, it's got wrestling and amateur wrestling is in it. And you know what? I was happy that we finally got to review it, Jeff. Yeah. And, you know, this is uh, sort of the old Rocky trope, you know, the young guy against all odds uh, uh, trying to, you know, will himself to victory. And for the uninitiated, uh, you don't know what we're talking about. This movie is about a high school wrestler uh, who uh, is in his last year. He lives in Spokane, Washington. And he decides that he wants to move down a weight class, which means he's going to have to cut weight. And he wants to take on basically the white whale uh, of the state, this wrestler that has never been defeated. He's uh, a, a guy that 
basically every other wrestler in the state is afraid of. Uh, and you know, he's, uh, shoot, shoot. shoot. Yeah, I was, I was trying to look at a, trying yeah. to look up his name. So, but uh, tremendous cast, Matthew Modine, Linda Fiorentino, Michael Schaffling, Barry with the Mohawk, Michael Schaffling, of course, famous from 16 candles. Sure. Uh, was. You know, uh, it was uh, the oily bohunk. Exactly. Yes. Six, and I think this is the, it was only- Jake. Jake, which was, yeah. I think that was the oily bohunk, though. This was the only two movies I believe that he actually made. Yeah, uh, it's like you know, some of the, it's like one of those weird kind of a, a yeah. cinematic anomalies. Barry, how's that for a? a and here was a guy that a good-looking guy first off. Yeah, uh, it didn't seem like he was a bad actor by any stretch. And I checked up on him. I don't know, five years ago, ten years ago. It was like, whatever happened to this guy? He's a carpenter, furniture maker now. Yeah. Like he just literally, he did the reverse it. Harrison Ford gimmick. Cause Harrison yeah, yeah. Ford was yeah. a carpenter before he became an actor. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But besides those uh, people we mentioned, we got uh, Ronnie Cox, uh, Harold so Sylvester. Look at this though. When you say that also look at the lineage for Matthew Modine in the family, you've got the son, Matthew Modine, his father, Ron, the fucking great Ronnie Cox. Right. Yeah. And then the grandfather, Robert's blossom. This is the old creepy guy that was in Home Alone. He oh, played, he was the next door neighbor. Yeah, yeah. yeah Remember the old that's guy? Funny. And then he's he did a million other movies too, but uh, he was in a few horror movies because he's definitely creepy. But I mean, that's quite you know, Robert's Blossom to Ronnie Cox to Matthew Modine. I'd be bragging about that. Well, and I'm not even done. But besides that, we got uh, Charles Hallahan, who's one of those faces yes. that you recognize. Daphne Zanuga. Uh, who's in a, a million 1980s movies. Forrest Whitaker plays one of the kids in school. James Gammon, yes. the, uh, the manager from Major League, plays uh, his friend's dad, like the alcoholic dad that kind of beats on him and stuff he like plays, that. He uh, plays Michael Schofling's Cooch's dad. Yeah. And then this movie is, I, I enjoy this movie so much, I can overlook the fact <laughs> that the <laughs> nightclub singer was played by Madonna. <laughs> You're going to say that I, I actually do. like the song crazy, uh, crazy for you. That's actually well, gonna... and let me say you have to like it because they only play it 8,000 times. in this movie. <laughs> yeah, right. So well, it's literally every five minutes they're playing the fucking song. Let's well, let's just say this is a, a pretty good soundtrack. You know, it is. Uh, lunatic fringe is a great song. They've got some other stuff. Uh, what did they get? The journey song. Uh, was it only the young? Only or the young. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, and it they brings, play that a, a bunch of times down the too. Ratings, what you're saying. It I, does. It, it does. Yeah, but this is such a fun movie. Uh, and there, there's so many iconic scenes. That the scene where he's uh, in the wrestling room uh, and he wants to prove to the the coach and the rest of his teammates that he's serious about about doing this thing and, and facing this guy. And he begins to climb up the wall using the pegs. And then you know these teammates that have been kind of ridiculing him for wanting to, uh, to drop weight, to face this seemingly uh, unbeatable foe start to slowly cheer him on. And they realize how serious he is about this, uh, this quest, if you will, Barry, see how I worked that in there. And oh, I like uh, that. his, yeah. his friend and his friend, uh, Michael Shoffling, who plays an Indian guy in there. Now, of course, he'd be absolutely, uh, you know, taken to school for uh, daring to play an Indian. He tells him, he goes, what you're doing is you're going on a vision quest. You know, you're, you're, the spirit inside of you is making you want to go and face this guy. And it's one of these things that's explained in the movie and stuff like that. But of course, let's talk about Barry uh, before we started recording the one scene that perhaps might cause some issues now. 
And that, of course, is the laundry basket scene. Do you want to take that? Absolutely. And there's actually there's actually a couple of scenes. There's one I'll talk about right after, which I think in some ways may be worse. The laundry yes, basket yes, scene. Uh, I know what you yeah, mean. you know which one I've got. Or you have to refer to it. But the laundry basket scene is great. First off, we should clearly say Linda Fiorentino. And this movie came out in 1985. I would have been, I believe, 21 years old when this movie came out. Linda Fiorentino. Fiorentina, Fiorentino, she was really hot. Like, and she wasn't she just hot. smoky voice, you yes. know. Yes. And she had a different look about her. She had short hair. She, her smile, there was something behind it. Like, there was just the, there was a mystery to her. And she was really incredible. Just beautiful, but really sultry and sexy as well. And, uh, I, I think as the, the legend goes, she was infamously really difficult to work with. Her career never really took off the way it should have. She was, I believe, the first Men in Black movie, which was obviously a big deal. But I, I think she should have been a bigger star and apparently just uh, a big a-hole and, when it, and you had to work with her. But with that, there is a scene where young Loudon Wainwright, and I, I believe Matthew Modine might be the oldest 12th grader as far as maybe competing. No, 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 for, no, no. We, we still, the, the standard is still Stockard Channing is Rizzo in Greece. Okay. She was, like, she was like 35 years old when she played that role. Oh, it's not like the guys in Porky's who had gray hair. Is exactly, we're not yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it's like, but again, you know, look, Matthew Modine, he doesn't scream teenager. Michael Schofling does. Uh, with the Indian hairstyle, etc. But uh, there is a scene where he is in her laundry room and he starts sniffing her panties. And I got to tell you, look, let's let's put the cards on the table. If I was, tw- it, it, he's seventeen or eighteen in the movie. You know, it, come on, sniffing panties. Absolutely, he's sniffing the panties. <laughs> come on, he's seventeen or eighteen. Who wouldn't? She's smoking. She's hot. He's not related to her. What's wrong with that? I don't see he it. He might have been doing something else with her panties also, I'm just going to say. Well, know. these days, yeah. If this was like a Netflix movie, absolutely. However, there is another scene that maybe we should address. And look, the world has changed in the, in the 37 years since this film has come out. And two other films that come to mind that, that catch a lot of flack now, the aforementioned 16 Candles. You know, there's a cancel culture out there that this movie includes, uh, I guess, sexual molestation, you know, a form of rape. There's, you know, you could really look for it. The other one, and I mentioned Anthony Edwards, Revenge of the Nerds, which also has come under fire. But this movie as well, 37 years later, and I don't remember when I first saw this movie having any issue with this scene. And as I watched this Four or five years ago, I said, holy shit, like they didn't cut this out. There is a scene where he, Matthew Modine head over heels smitten with the Linda Fiorentino character, Carla, if I'm correct, and uh, just completely bonkers over her. And she apparently is going on a date with uh, the character Harold Sylvester, the, whatever his name in the movie is. Plays and his Matthew- teacher plays the teacher and and a good guy It's not a bad, you know, not a bad guy. And Matthew Modine is with Carla finds out about this freak out and tries to force himself upon her, essentially raping her. Like I, you know, she though, uh, I think smacks him or knees him, something gets him off of her. 
and gives him a lecture, which is what you always do to rapists. Exactly. If you sit there, you give them a lecture. It usually works. Yeah. It works. They see the error of their ways, and life goes on, and that's what happens in this movie. Maybe that's what Javorsky should do with Deshaun Watson. Give him a oh. lecture. Not well, that Deshaun is guilty of anything, only alleged inappropriate <laughs> behavior. 11 games, Jaworski, 11 and games. What is $5 million? Yes. 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 But he's yes. Still, there's no admission that he did anything wrong. So, well, there might Even be. Even though he settled <laughs> on a lawsuit, please, we're getting aside here. Let's get back to Vision Quest. Yes, or, there might be. But this is uh, John Watson. Yeah, and I got it. So, again, the panty thing does not really uh, do anything in a negative for me. The attempted, and I don't know if it's, you know, I don't know what he was going to do, but the uh, trying to force himself on her when she is saying, stop it, no, is it is a little cringy. Other than that, I love this movie. As you said, the cast, this is an 80s dream cast, right? A lot, everybody was in something else, and and. It, they all come together for this movie, which I love. The soundtrack, as you mentioned, Only the Young by Journey. Yeah, Change by John Waite. John Waite yeah. of the 80s. Change. John uh, Waite's still out there, Barry, doing still, concerts. Still touring. Still yeah. touring. And still got a good uh, voice by all accounts. Yeah, which is good. Uh, Hot-Blooded by Foreigner. As you mentioned, Lunatic Fringe, which they also play quite a few times. But a Red great Rider. Red Rider. Pardon me. Tom Cochran. Life is a Highway a few years later. Fine Canadian, apparently. Even got a Ronnie James Dio song, a Don Headley song. There's a Style Council song. And the movie, while it doesn't have the ending that it has the right ending. It may not be the ending that midway through the film that you're hoping for, but at the same time, when the ending comes, the ending makes sense, and I think it actually ends well, which is kind of a surprise. Well, so, since, uh, you were talking about a movie that's 37 years old. Why don't you sure. tell us what you mean by that? Because, you know, quite frankly, you, you folks, if you haven't seen it, you've had 37 years, you know, so go ahead. Tell, yeah. tell the folks what you mean. Well, he, uh, it, it, he's got his big match going to take place, and this is the one that he's always gone for, but is it? While the quest is, and it's a vision quest, and, and while he is on the quest, the subplot of him loving Carla and Carla being, I think, three years older, which is not – she's supposed to be 20. She's clearly not 20 either in this movie. He winds I believe, up – I believe when they made the movie, Modine was actually older than Than she was. was. Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe figure. it too. And he looks – I mean you see him on Stranger Things now, and he looks old. And I think he's only 63 or 64. Still got a beautiful head of hair. I'll give him that though. It's white gray, but it's a great Yeah, hair. but when you look at his hands, you see the hands of a of a 70-year-old man. Anyways, he winds up with uh, Daphne Zuniga, who was in – she was always the – you know, that's interesting. I never thought about that. She was in that movie – the sure thing. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. 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 And she was the other girl. It's the same role. Time. It's the yeah. same role, right? Yeah. She, the guy was in John Cusack, right? Was in love with Nicolette Sheridan. Sheridan. Yeah. But winds up with Daphne Zuniga at the end, much like this film. And uh, in, in both those movies that, you know, the sure thing and this one, it's the girl he sh- should have ended up with. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what, yeah. exactly. Which was kind of what we saw in 16 candles also. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, they're with that, but 
I would say this is a really fun movie. If you're into nostalgia, if you're into Stranger Things, because again, this is Matthew Modine, even though he plays a wicked character on Stranger Things, but this is a really good movie. And I'll tell you, I can watch this movie. Uh, I could put this on the, on the rotation and meaning that if it's midnight and I'm going to bed and there's nothing to watch, I'd put this on and fall asleep to it. I enjoy it that much. Little trivia for you, Barry. Uh-oh. What? Famous pro wrestler listed this movie as his favorite wrestling movie of all time. Ooh, uh, do I get a hint? It's true, Barry. Oh, it's damn true. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Kurt fucking Angle, yes. Kurt Angle has said this is his favorite wrestling-related movie of all time. He loves it. I love it. Yeah, and, you know, that's the thing is, you know, if you're one of these people like, oh, I don't want to fucking see this romantic subplot and all that, the wrestling scenes are really well done. You know, you see the guys training in the, uh, you know, in the wrestling room with their coach. He's putting them through their paces. He's chewing their asses out. Hey, stuff that definitely you couldn't do that nowadays. I'm just going to say that, you know, the the way they kind of verbally try to uh, motivate the guys. But, of course, now it's seen as, uh, you know, like, oh, you, you can't t- talk bad about someone like that. You have to po- only give me positive reinforcement. And, of course, you know, that means the coach can't bust their ass and, and tell them, you know, get up and move, get up and move, and, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, so I liked all the wrestling-related scenes, uh, you know, the match with uh, with Shoot. And I have to tell you, you know, one of the things, whether it's wrestling, boxing, MMA, you you know, you always have the, uh, the weigh-in scenes. And this weigh-in scene where he has to meet, like, uh, whatever the, the weight is, and when he first weighs, he's like, I don't know if it's a quarter of a pound or half a pound over. And literally, as the uh, official is there weighing him and his opponent in, and Modine literally strips naked and gets on. And they're like, yep, you've made the weight. You know, like he he officially has made the weight and he gets in and he has this match with this guy. And, uh, you know, it's funny because uh, I can't remember what the final score was, but they were like, you know, like 11 to 10 or something like that. And my wife and I were watching. I go, yeah, uh, I'm going to tell you what I do know about amateur wrestling. There's not a lot of amateur wrestling matches that have like 11 and 10 as the score. It's usually like three to two or or something because the guys know what the hell they're doing. They're good. You know, they're good. You know, if their opponent is not uh, anywhere in their class, they're not going to be sitting there scoring, you know, 11 and 10 points. They're going to pin them, you know. And so uh, this is a very good depiction of uh, of an amateur wrestling match. And uh, the uh, the kid that's his opponent, he's not really a heel uh, other than the fact that he is extremely confident, you know, uh, and he comes and uh, watches one of his matches and kind of uh, he says, yeah, you know, something to the effect of uh, you're you're not going to beat me, uh, you know, but he's not like a, a full on heel, you know, he's just sort of that. Uh, what, what do they call it? Uh, the MacGuffin. He's the uh, the object of attention of the you know in the way that people say the briefcase in Pulp Fiction is the MacGuffin. That's what they're after. That's what you know motivates the plot and his pursuit of shoot the the guy from the other team. Uh, that's the MacGuffin in this movie. That's what he's uh, pursuing. So let's get to our uh, guest reviewers. We're uh, getting reviews this week from Frank Fisher and Judy Steele. Thank you so much. I, I believe this is Judy's definite first review. I'm not sure. Uh, you think Frank has reviewed for us before? I want to say I think he did something, whether it was a review or a TV or something. But I, if I, I forgot, yeah. Frank, forgive me. I'm sorry. So I'm going to read Judy's first and I'll throw it to you for Frank's Sounds review. Sounds good. All right. Judy said, quote, I liked it, but it would not be absolute must see. The music, of course, was awesome. Definitely a guy movie to me. 
I'm sure a lot of the brothership will love it for Linda Fiorentino. She might have a point that's, there. That's I get true. Him. Yeah. Matthew Modine was good in this movie. I would not say great. It is a typical 80s teen movie. There were some uh, a few very good moments. The wrestling scenes were actually pretty solid from what I've seen of Olympic wrestling. The only thing is Modine is so much smaller than the guy he's fighting with that it looks awkward at times. There are so many other movies with the same storyline that are better made. This was just so-so. I didn't hate it, but I didn't fall head over heels for it either. You know, I said, and to be fair, thank you, Judy, for your view, by the way. You know, this is uh, how many movies were made after Rocky that essentially had the same basic storyline, the young underdog coming through against the odds and, and you know, overcoming his opponent who seemingly had the uh, the major edge. Uh, so I, I have to say, Barry, I think that's kind of a fair point she makes. Yeah, it's a fair point. She does say that Matthew Modine is much smaller than his opponent. Shoot. I'm assuming she's talking from a muscular muscular standpoint. Yeah, probably. Yeah, because I think Modine's probably a foot taller. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but this guy shoot looks like he was a spark plug of a wrestler. Modine kind of tall and lanky, so uh, a little different there. And I I believe I have Frank Fisher's review. Actually, and the first Frank- line of his review. Was <laughs> I was first say. attempt at a review. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly, Frank Fisher answering your question. My first attempt at a review. Hope it's not too long. It seems a little long, but we're going to give this a shot right now. Uh, <clears throat> clear my throat. Take a deep breath. Frank, when I first agreed to do this review and then I saw the poster for the movie, I almost backed out. Guy and girl hugging the tagline. He needed a lucky break. And then she moved in. I thought this was going to be a romantic drama. And that's probably my least favorite genre by a mile. But I decided I'd man up and take one for the team, and I'm glad that I did. I was definitely taking inspiration for movies like Karate Kid and even a little bit of Rocky. Instead of chasing a title or trying to stand up to bullies, Loudon played by Matthew Modine wants to drop down three weight classes to wrestle Brian Chute, the best wrestler in the state. Despite some telling him not to do it because of, for various reasons, Loudon does it because he thinks he needs to do something meaningful, thus the title, Vision Quest. So now, let, the let, let me pause oh, you right there. Did he go down three? I, I wasn't sure if it was one way class <laughs> or three. I mean, I'm sure, for, you know, I must have uh, remembered it incorrectly if it was three whole weight classes. That's quite a drop. Yeah, and I took way too many edibles to give you a, uh, so I don't, I can't, <laughs> 120, I don't know. The nosebleeds that, it, that happened during yes. the movie also. So yes. please continue. Yes. Now the B plot, not sure if this was intended, but this took a back seat for me. But Carla, played by Linda Fiorentino, with her mountain of 80s hair, wanders into town on her way to San Francisco. Loudon falls in love. And blah, 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 blah. I don't like romantic subplots. Stop right there. Let me just ask you. He brings up a good point. So how the hell, you know, she's like a, a New York, a Jersey type of girl. How the hell did she get uh, going to San Francisco and she ends up in Spokane? In a car. Well, it's the, uh, she she took the long way. Uh, apparently she didn't have MapQuest <laughs> or something or, you know. Yeah. So why don't we, why don't we look at that? So let's see. She wants to go to San Francisco. She's winds up in Spokane. Where did she initially start her journey? 
That's what we need to find out. Because uh, like Billings, Montana or something? Or like Canada, fucking Vancouver yeah. or somewhere. But yeah, if you're going to say, Lou, Lou, will you join us for a second? Lou, being our resident uh, geography expert. Oh, sure if, thing. So if Linda Fiore, <laughs> this is good. So she has she has 12 gallons of gas in her car. At, yes. At that, that four twenty two per gallon. No, all that aside, Lou. She, yeah. <laughs> she's going Lighted to run leaded. Yeah, exactly. This is or diesel. It could it be yeah. diesel? Yeah. Uh, give, me, but give me a tank full of ethyl. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she's going to San Francisco. She is somehow temporarily, for a couple of months at least, relocating in Spokane. Where does this journey initiate from? Good Lord. I mean, Spokane seems a little far out for like right. any sort of cross Spokane country. Spokane is far out for people that live in Washington. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Except for people who live in Walla Walla. So yeah, yeah where she, I don't know. Would she, see, I, see, let me just say folks, you know, you, you can, uh, you can stick to wrestling. You can do your 605, your Cornette show. You don't get quality geography type of information from just any podcast. And that's a really, really good point, Jeff, because you have right. certain podcasts that are out there that will dissect the minutia of like Clash of the Champions 5 from beginning to end, including commercials. We here have an expert who lives in San Francisco uh -huh. trying to help us solve, like an Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, exactly. You'll, yeah. you'll get the straight news here on Breaking Kayfabe with uh, Lewis and Clark. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Look at Lou trying to get his own show here. <laughs> who the fuck is Clark? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's Chevy Chase. <laughs> it's, it's Clark, it's Clark, wait a minute. Is Clark a brother shipper that we don't know about? <laughs> I don't know. So anyway, please continue Frank's our uh, uh, review bear. Yeah, Frank, we're getting a lot of miles out of your review, if you can't tell, which is great. The, <laughs> the weak romantic subplot aside, the sports drama is engaging, and I would put it right there with the Karate Kid. The other wrestlers and the coach who don't want Lown to drop weight classes are minor characters meant to be roadblocks, but don't feel like cardboard standees. They feel like breathing characters. The rival shoot isn't a villain or a bad guy. Uh, wait, did, I, wait, did somebody else just say that? I, yes, I think we oh. just heard that. Uh, the rival shoot isn't a villain or a bad guy. Early in the film, Loudon tells shoot his goal and shoot responds. I hope you do. And this is something I found refreshing in a sports movie. The opposition is just a rival, not a villain. And I got to agree with that. I like yeah, that. No, that's a good point. Yeah, because you don't. Where do you ever get that? Like Karate Kid takes it to the complete opposite. Exactly. They're, they're massive, massive evil. Yeah, shoot is not the uh, what do you call no. it? Johnny? Uh, you know, sweep the leg guy. He's he's not a cartoon. He's yeah. uh, you know got a little bit of a uh, little bit of something uh, to him there. And this guy is a badass. When we see this guy walking up and down the bleachers, he looks like high school Brock Lesnar. Yeah, that's exactly what he looks like. Yes, he's a fucking badass. This guy. I have a habit of rambling with things, and that's actually Frank saying that, not me. Yeah, uh, he fits right in with us. He there. does, right? I have a habit of rambling with things like this, so I'll get to the point that got me the most, the message of the movie. The last line of dialogue, I guess that's why we got to love those people who deserve it, like there's no tomorrow, because when you get right down to it, there isn't a very true and something personal to, I don't know, I, when you get right down to it, there isn't. Okay, I'm going to reread that because I, yeah. 
the last line of dialogue, I guess that's why we got to love these people who deserve it like there's no right. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. I don't fucking know. I totally <laughs> pushed. I have completely. Very I'm on a whole different line at this point. Yeah. God, well, yeah. I'm barely a podcast co-host. I mean, let alone an actor. I guess that's why those people deserve it. When you get down to it, that's why this is true. Five years ago, I, this is important. Five years ago, I nearly died from cardiac arrest. And currently, my wife is battling terminal cancer. And the movies are right. You're not guaranteed tomorrow, so embrace today. Well, first off, uh, Frank, very happy that you were able to uh, to kick out of that cardiac arrest. I know that Jeff and Lou are right beside me with your wife, uh, who's facing terminal cancer. We're there. If you need us, reach out to us. The brothership has always been there, uh, and we always will be, and we hope that whatever journey uh, you and your wife are currently on that it's as painless as humanly possible. Amen. Amen. Frank, yeah. all the best to you, my friend. Yeah. Uh, the acting in this movie is pleasantly surprising for this kind of movie and is very good. Got a good 80s soundtrack. Madani, Journey, Dio, Don Henley, Hagar, Foreigner. I was ready to give this movie a big thumb way down, but this is definitely a thumbs up. To quote Roger Ebert on this movie, it's a formula movie where the formula works. Nice oh, job. Yes, thank you. Appreciate it, Frank. Uh, so what do you folks uh, think? Where do you stand on Vision Quest in the Brothership? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Barry, we're going to put a bow on the old episode 255, Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Another fun episode, although we had sort of a, a tough beginning uh, talking about uh, the uh, – the wake up that you got with uh, the three uh, three guys uh, and who are going through various health related issues and one of whom we lost. Uh, we're thinking of all those three guys. So that being said, Barry, are you about ready to do the old go home, my friend? Yeah, and except for that, you know, where where our a couple of our friends are in the hospital, and obviously one friend has passed away. This was actually a really fun episode. Otherwise, though, as they all are, I will That's just true. remind you. So, on behalf of my co-host Barry Rose, our producer Lou Kippelman, I will remind you respectfully, of course, that Breaking Kayfabe with Baudrin and or Barry is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Take it home. Please.